Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello, Marlow. Hello, the web, and welcome back. Yes, thanks for joining us. This is Sam Sethi, of course, and we're going to be talking today about artificial intelligence, the ethics, privacy, and transparency, as well as the future of AI. And joining me is a very special guest today. It's Katie King. She is a board advisor, a published author, and a keynote speaker. A great book, um, and I do recommend reading, is called Using Artificial intelligence in marketing how to harness ai and maintain the competitive advantage uh, she's a global speaker as well and we're going to learn so much today so katie welcome to marlow fm thank you so much sam it's great to be here yeah thank you um, i hope you enjoyed our brief lunch at cooper's i did it was scrummy <laughs> <laughs> and we will be having nice champers at the complete anger after this. i would hope so <laughs> so if you're a future guest that's the sort of bar we're looking at um uh, so welcome as i said um let's start off with the book um, you've got a brilliant book with loads of case studies about what's practically going on. But before we go into what's going on, can you help people understand what is AI? Let's define it first, um, and then we maybe look at how it's being used. Yeah, definitely. Great opening question, really. So when we talk about artificial intelligence, we're thinking of a, not just one technology, but a family of technologies. And PwC and a number of other leading analyst houses and, and consultants define it as that family under which you have things like machine learning, you have speech recognition. So if you, for example, tag me later on today on Facebook, there's that facial and image recognition within, it's AI within Facebook that enables you to go, right, actually, it's suggesting tag Katie in that. So you have these different technologies underneath that banner. Much of what we're really talking about, most of what the focus of the book is, is this narrow AI. And again, within that is mostly machine learning. So we're talking data, we're talking algorithms, we're talking of a technology that's been around since around about 1950. But we've had five or six decades of AI, what they call winters, where you haven't had the processing power and you you haven't had the data. So 10 or so years of smartphone technology has given us more data than we can cope with. And, you know, changes and developments in processing power mean it's viable today. So today, AI, money is being pumped into AI by venture capitalists, and all of a sudden it's viable. So up crop loads of these tech companies, many of whom I feature in the book, who are disrupting Many different aspects of marketing, PR, HR, sales, and so on. And we'll delve into that a little bit more. But fundamentally, it's data. Okay. And you mentioned one other word that's critical to AI, algorithm. Mm. What's an algorithm? Just to define that as well. Yeah. So, you know, we're really talking about sort of software. Software with, with noughts and ones and the ability to kind of code in programs like t Python and TensorFlow, you know, that then enables people to do do all kinds of wonderful things and train machines, you know, to do incredible things. So with machine learning, um, you're able to train a machine with loads of input of data to do what you need it to do. And it will then go on and carry on learning by itself. And the kind of intelligence that it's exhibiting is akin to our human intelligence. Um, and that's really the big differentiator. You know, it's able to exhibit the kind of human-like intelligence. It's not quite there. We haven't cracked, you know, how the human brain works, but some of the neural networks and some of the abilities of these algorithms 
are mimicking what our human brain can do. Yeah, I mean, we, <clears throat> you, you talked about narrow AI, and you know, we've seen machines like IBM's Watson uh, and AlphaGo from Google, you know, and they're trained narrowly, and that's why it's called narrow AI to play and win uh, the American. Uh, game show jeopardy um but if you asked it to boil a cup of tea it has no idea exactly right. so it's it's trained on one specific task and alpha go was an example of a uh, uh the go is the m- most complex game in the world allegedly i've never mm. played it a chinese game and i think it's got 64 layers mm-hmm. like a chessboard but 64 layers of it um <clears throat> and it basically taught itself to play and then came out and beat the world's master at it and again Watson beat uh, Kasparov at chess so they're very good at doing singular tasks very well repetitively and what what I think people have this big fear of AI because they've seen Terminator and they've Mm -hmm. seen the hype out there in the the Daily Mail and various other online publications we're all doomed AI is going to kill us we're dead you know it's the machines Um, I think Stephen Hawkins Elon Musk and several other well-known people in the world have said you know beware beware the AI genie you know it's going to come out the bottle and kill us all I mean where where do you stand yourself on this where do you sit so Based on the research, and I spent a year researching this book and talking to some of the world's leading academics, the MITs, King's College, you know, some incredible academics, but also lots of brands and numerous tech disruptors and policymakers. And the consensus is nobody genuinely knows. There is a lot of hype. You know, people are reverting to storytelling and to Hollywood because they don't have enough facts to report on. So that's why we go back to Hal and Terminator and, you know, the Matrix even. Um, I don't believe that the AI will in the next 10 to 15 years be able to do the broader general artificial intelligence or super artificial that's intelligence. That's where it's got a conscious. It's got a, like we have as humans, it has an ability to self-learn and it has a, a conscience. That's general Absolutely. AI, allegedly, where we'll go to. Even beyond, so you described the single AI. So in the book, I have a, a hotel in Tokyo that's 100% staffed by robots, but you've still got... Dinosaur di- robots. Dinosaur though. robots, dinosaur robots at reception but a robotic arm in the kitchens that's flipping the burgers, other kinds of AI-embedded tools in the rooms for in-room entertainment and heating and personalised, that kind of thing. So as you said, different kinds of elements of AI in different formats doing all different things, but not one AI, not one machine or one robot or automated assistant that can do everything. Nowhere near that. It may never come. Many people believe it will. If it does come, it could easily be 50 years away. And I think it will go in parallel with our ability to crack neuroscience and understand how the human brain genuinely works. And again, we're miles off doing that. But it probably will come. I, I, I think... You know, if you took 50 years ago, and or 1920, some of the films you saw, we were all going to be living in uh, high-rise flats with flying cars um, and, you know, robots serving us at the house as a maid. So I do think sometimes our future, in, or our look into the future, sometimes becomes fantastical rather than actual and practical. Um, but I do, I do think narrow AI and what it's doing today is interesting. So what was the name of that hotel, by the way, just out of it's interest? It's the Henna, Henna Hotel on the outskirts of Tokyo. And have you been there yet? I haven't. No, I was hoping they'd invite me, but no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have to have a trip. Do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let, let, let's start off with some practical 
little examples from the book, some case studies. So give me give me a good example of where AI, or, and you know, we, we won't keep saying narrow AI, so where AI or machine learning is being used in business to make a real tangible difference. Yeah, absolutely. So you'll all be familiar with the brand, with TGI Fridays. So in the hospitality space, you have diners, you have people that go into the restaurants and they book over the app. You have, and this is an interesting piece because the job title of the guy I interviewed, Sheriff Mitias, he's the chief... Sorry? (laughs) Sheriff Mitias (laughs) is the chief experience officer. Right. Now there's a job title we didn't have five years ago or even ten years ago, and we'll come back, I'm sure, later in the interview to jobs and the impact of AI. But with consent, with, with, the, with the consent of the diners who come into the restaurant and book online and so on, they take all of this data and they use AI to basically personalise the service. So instead of saying, Katie, and we haven't said how old I am yet, but I'm going to do it now. I'm Katie, a gentleman. I never <laughs> ask a lady her age. Katie, female, 50 to 65-year-old category, um, this demographic... <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I'm sat opposite you, Katie. You're not even in the 60 category, so I don't know where you went with that one. The point being that you can homogenise groups of people. Yeah, you can, you can, with AI, you can now be very narrow and say, Sam loves ribs, comes into the restaurant on Thursday evening at five o'clock, has two daughters, X, Y, Z, and you can have food ready, you can personalise, you know he's vegan, you know his background, you know his preferences. That's the kind of data mining and marketing personalization that that restaurant has been able to use. And on the back of that, they've I think it's doubled their orders and they've got some amazing statistics around, you know, increased profitability and so on. So we're talking about, I'd say for me, that's marketing, it's customer service and it's sales, but all using technology like artificial intelligence. And again, within that, there's a message that says we can't have those silos of different departments. We've got to come together as three or four different departments in an organisation around a technology like machine learning and AI and gain insights from that kind of data. So that's one good example. Okay. So I always say that we've been collecting data for decades. So um, in a previous life of mine, um, I was the marketing director for a company called MicroStrategy. <clears throat> we had a, it was data warehousing, it was called, they're not big data. And then it was called online analytical processing, uh, OLAP. Uh, and, and, you know, you got some really crap names like relational online. So, um, and it was then called business intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the only difference was it wasn't real time. It was historical data that we were working on for McDonald's, as an example. Um, but I think, you know, with data, we've got the pipe has been small and it's now getting bigger. The acquisition pipe, you mentioned mobile, but, you know, we've got IoT coming yeah. up. We've got 5G. Um, but, you know, the first thing we did with data was we aggregated it. Then we indexed it, thanks, Google. Uh, then we made it, you know, more intelligence, you know, business intelligence. Mm. Then we've uh, added now this layer of AI, which is just starting. We're voice-enabling data now, so interfacing to it. And, uh, and, and again, later on in the show, we'll talk about what comes after, mm. you know, what's the next thing we can do with data to make it much more useful. But I do see it. So a- AI is this first step, and the, the example you give TGI Fridays is, is taking 
what we've done before, CRM, customer relationship management, I suppose putting a, a layer of intelligence where the machine's doing the intelligence rather than the human having to join the dots itself. That's right, yeah. And it's taking away that guesswork and it's giving that human. And that's why I prefer to talk about augmented intelligence rather than AI. And in my book, I've got a chapter on the paradox of personalization and the misnomer that is artificial intelligence because actually if you use ai properly and again let's demystify it we're talking about software enabled programs voice assistants robotic processing all kinds of areas if we use these tools that are out there in the market at the moment we can give people a very personalized experience so a call center might be 85 percent handling inquiries now through ai and that might be in the shape of a call center it might be in an airport it might be some kind of um you know bot standing there some kind of pedestal that people can go up to and interact with 85 percent of those routine inquiries can be handled by the ai but then when you get the other 15 percent of more complex ones you can escalate those up to a human being yeah and, and we all love to have that moment where it's personal hello katie welcome back oh you remembered me. He now, knows my name. It didn't. It said it on the screen, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. But you always feel special. So I think if we can take uh, machine learning and data and make it intelligent so that I don't get um, a, I don't know, let's say a magazine, not a magazine, but a pamphlet delivered on my doorstep for things I have no interest in yeah. because they just don't understand me. Or if I get another Viagra ad on <laughs> online, I seriously, I know I'm over 50, but that doesn't mean I need to have exactly. Viagra. Thank you very much, whoever you are sending those ads. So, okay, what other examples? Give us another example yeah, of someone so who might be... Also reality check here there's a lot happening at the front end which is customer experience and marketing but there's a lot in the back end and i think there's a lot of development work going on where people don't yet want to share the crown jewels of the great work they're doing in ai so a good example of this would be bt so british telecom bt are using the predictive analytics piece of ai's ability to track weather patterns so they know for example if there's certain weather let's say it's snowing or really heavy rainfall or thunder or something like that. They can look back and the AI can crunch years of data. And think of a big organisation like BT and the huge amount of data it's got. It can analyse all of that data and say, right, we're now predicting. We've now got those weather patterns predicted for the next two or three weeks. We know when that weather pattern occurs, the broadband lines are down. We need to have these number of engineers in our field service ready to go out and repair the broadband lines. So that's ops, yeah? That's mm -hmm. scheduling, that's field service, engineering and so on. But actually, if you look at them compared to their competitors, that could be a great selling point. That could be great CX, that could be great marketing. So again, some, a lot of it is in behind the scenes um, and less sexy than some of the other stuff that we're seeing. But that's... But, but, but it doesn't have to be, and I think that's a key point, it doesn't have to be sexy. It has to return a revenue or at least make a difference to the cost. Exactly. So it could be cost saving yeah. or it could be revenue generating, but it's affecting the bottom line of the business. And, exactly. And I think all businesses are going to find uh, that they need it. Now, what, what worries me more is when I talk to a lot of startups, they, they go, 
you know, they play what I call buzzword bingo. Oh, yes, we've got AI, we've got blockchain, we've got, you know, all these words, IoT. And they throw it all into their deck that they go and see a VC. And half of them, or most of them, aren't using any AI. It's just a standard computer program, actually. Yeah, absolutely right. So many of the people I interviewed all over the world, I've got interviews in Japan and Hong Kong and China and, you know, Europe. And they said, you know, we are being mandated by our CEO to buy AI, irrespective of how good it is, what it does. Don't even worry too much about the due diligence. Buy some AI. Stick AI on your job title. Put it on the website, you know, and package it up. And therefore, you've got a lot of failures and you've got a lot of hype. And so where we're honestly at at the moment with AI, and if any of your listeners are looking at, you know, Gartner, many companies want to get into the magic quadrant and, you know, they take the advice of people like Gartner and Forrester and Ovum and where we are with AI and machine learning and, and, and so on is that hype cycle. I'd say we're slightly, depending on which country you're in, um, it slightly differs. But, you know, certainly in, in the UK and other parts of Europe, we've moved beyond the innovation trigger where you have lots of these new technologies that all of a sudden are um, scientifically or, you know, in an engineering world now viable and exciting and where we're at is that you know there's all the hype and paranoia around it and what i found in the book is that certain companies fell into the next phase which is the trough of disillusionment so another really good example is a bank in switzerland called saxo bank and they deployed chatbots assistance a few years back and it was too early you know, they wanted to be an innovator. And that's, again, I'm sure we'll come on to what kind of company, what stage are you at and how do you prepare for AI? If you want to lead the pack, then you're innovating, aren't you? And you're taking some risks. So they took some risks and they innovated and they had these chatbot assistants and they had them in their reception areas and they dealt with certain of their clients with them. And when clients interacted beyond the initial fun factor and novelty... They found them gimmicky and quite limited. Oh, very limited. And I mean. I've walked around <clears throat> and interacted with Pepper on the exhibition floor many, many times, and it's actually quite basic. Again, back to your point, it's been programmed, it's got a limited amount of things it's been programmed to do. And the extra layer of this was that staff found it quite threatening. They were thinking, what's in it for me? And is this the end of my job? And they just weren't ready. Um, And so I don't think in, in all industries we are yet through the hype period, the period of um, actually having this trough of disillusionment and where we've got to get next, and it will take another two to five years, is enlightenment. And enlightenment comes when more and more people are implementing these tools and starting to generate really good ROI, return on investment. And that, that leads to the final phase, which is the plateau of productivity. We're not there yet. Okay. So... Uh, you mentioned that the staff were fearful of AI. Um, Yuri Naval in his great book, Homo Deus and um, Sapiens, mm. he talks about this thing called the great unwanted. When, when the future AI does take over in terms of we can see some jobs and, and these are now white collar, not just blue collar jobs are going to get replaced. You know, mm. the legal... Um, secretary right who's been collating information from all these tomes of case study history of legal um precedent and 
that can be done very quickly by a machine. Um, accountants just doing some simple returns, tax returns, they're no longer needed. In fact, most accountants, I do my own self-tax returns now, I don't need an accountant. Um, dry, you know, we will see maybe later on autonomous driving and truck driving. and so, But but AI, and as I said, Nuri says... Um, the great unwanted 20% will move into this new world. Um, are they right to be fearful? They are right to be fearful if they have the wrong mindset and an inability to let themselves be trained and progress. I think AI will, in that period of probably two to five years and probably 10 years, depending on your industry sector, reshape potentially every single job function. And so you quote it, you know, the, the lawyer. Um, but it doesn't mean that those that lawyers, you know, you will no longer hire trainee lawyers. You hire a lawyer and you no longer have your newly qualified lawyers in the basement wading through NDAs looking for um, you know exceptions to it. The AI does that. So actually the AI is just another automation tool that enables that trainee lawyer to not have to do such a boring job. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you stop hiring them. You might be more profitable and you know they will save time. And we can again come on to the, the, the working week. I think AI, in a slightly longer period of time, could help redefine the nature of work and community and what it means to be human. But I think for another 10, 15 years, it's the next layer of automation. Yeah. You know, we're I agree. in fourth industrial revolution. We've had the steam, the electrification. You and I have lived through 25 plus, you know, years of the era of computing. You know, when I started out in marketing, you know, I had to ring for press packs in the post. I had to, you know, type or even handwrite sometimes my press releases and post them out. Everything was manual. Yeah. And do you remember you know, press clippings? I do remember press yes. clippings. And I also remember eight hour stints down the wine press getting drunk, you know, things <laughs> like that. But, you know, we were much more manual. But then we were still, we had typewriters. So if we go back, we can track back yeah. to previous industrial revolutions. This one is different, though. Okay. This one is very, very different. Now, um, we talked about at the beginning of the show <clears throat> the, the need for a layer of ethics and transparency around this. Um, one, of the, one of your roles uh, is that you're helping the UK government in an all-parliamentary group called the APPG. It's a task force for the enterprise adoption of AI. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and what its role is in, in ensuring that AI is not going to just you know, become general AI and replace humans, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's a privilege to be involved in that group. And luckily, um, I'm relieved to see that they're not basing it around parliamentarians. They're pulling in experts from academia, from business. So it's one of a number of different task forces. There are task forces focused more on education. Ours is focused more on the adoption of AI. And it goes hand in hand with the government's industrial strategy and the work of other departments like the Office for AI and the Centre for, for Data and Ethics. So there's all these different groups um, who are starting to bring experts in from around the world and understand the implications of this technology and the balancing act of not stifling innovation with um, you know, regulation, but making sure that the UK is you know, advancing at 
that's a pace that's acceptable that doesn't you know sacrifice people's civil liberties so the work that was done last year and it's publicly available um, which are the five principles of ai is really where the uk i think wants to lead the pack so we are behind the americans and we're way behind the chinese in terms of um you know, the investment in it and the adoption of it in all different industry sectors. But we are leading the way in terms of trying to safeguard, you know, the ethics of it. So we're looking at transparency. We're looking at um, what does it mean to our communities to have AI in our different industries. And it's really early days, I hasten to add. You know, we're only two or three meetings in. So our role is to help brief the parliamentarians, but also extending that into industry bodies and trade bodies. So how are retailers and accountants and HR professionals and marketing professionals, they need to look to somebody to help them define a code of conduct and regulation. You know, GDPR has has done its what it, what it needs to do to, to a certain degree and we're talking about AI just like social media stepping on to many many other laws but above all of it should sit some kind of protection and I'll quote you a couple of pieces so it's the, the five um, proposed principles for this AI code one of them is that AI should operate on it being intelligible and fair which I think is really important and this next one the autonomous power to hurt destroy or deceive a human being being should never be vested in AI. And I think that's really laudable. But for me, that poses a lot of questions about um, geopolitics and different kinds of political systems, because for that to operate, you know, we can operate very well as multinational corporations where they have profit centres and they pay their taxes in different areas. But When it comes to something like AI, and it's down to how each country progresses, often it's for the benefit of the GDP of that country. So, okay, so there's five principles. I mean, this sounds like Asimov's three laws of robotics, right? So what are the other principles? You said they're... So, yeah, that's a couple of them. So one is that AI should be developed for the common good and the benefit of humanity. That AI shouldn't be used to diminish the data rights or the privacy of individuals or of families and communities. Um, And then the the fourth, that all citizens should have the right to be educated to enable them to flourish mentally, emotionally and economically alongside AI. Okay, so they're all great words. They are great words. Um, But how are you going to implement this against a company who sees AI as a competitive advantage, who is certainly not going to let you look at its algorithm and audit it, because then you're getting to see the crown jewels. Once you know what's inside the black box, you know how to do it, you know? That's the tricky thing. That's that balancing act of, you know, the, the... you know, so Google, you know, Google DeepMind gets swallowed up, um, you know, Facebook's dominance in it, um, all of the Chinese companies' involvement, all of the technology companies that are kind of growing out of the UK venture capital money. It's a free-for-all at the moment. And in a way, you could argue that's good that you have that sort of open market, that capitalism. But at what point do we start to overlay with that freedom to develop the, the layer of regulation and mandating. So do we put in mandates? Do we have taxation? Do we have regulation? I think it's a mixture of all different things. And I think the powerful thing is where you have um, on these groups, on these task forces, and preferably in the future on the boards of these powerful companies, 
lay people, you know, consumers, um, politicians, academia. And to me, they're the potential new ways of governing countries rather than us looking solely at an elected group of parliamentarians. Oh, you're being very <laughs> controversial there. Potentially. But what we certainly need is different viewpoints. Now, I, I, if I took social media five years ago, you know, we can't say ten because it wasn't really around that. Um, and I look at what it's done in terms of um, positive and negative, you know, um, connecting me with friends and keeping me in touch. But the negative I see is in cyberbullying. I see um, children attached to their phones, face down. I see, you know, the negatives. Mm. Now, I can imagine a, a government policy group like the one you're doing for AI existing, but you wouldn't have known what to put in place. This is my concern, is that you can put the cart before the horse mm. and, and you can start to try and regulate what isn't even out of the bottle, I you know, it, and, it, and that's my concern. Yeah, you're right. It's a timing issue, isn't it? And it, it's gonna, going to have to evolve. And so therefore, at the moment, it's based around a code of conduct and principles that rather than, you know, putting something down into, into a particular law that at the moment would be outdated very very quickly so i think it's a it's a task force it's an advisory board the main work will come from the office of ai and yeah i didn't even will, know that existed yeah i mean it's fairly new it was only really announced a few months back <laughs> i didn't even know that there was a digital secretary called jeremy wright as well <laughs> who are you jeremy yeah. what have you done i don't know i mean i've never I've never heard this guy ever speak maybe i need to get out more and find yeah. out <laughs> but you know these bodies are quite new the center for data data and ethics but you know what we have is the UK putting down funding into an industrial strategy that is about safeguarding us and making sure we're competitive vis-a-vis -vis other countries around the world. But for me, the biggest has to be that international cooperation. And I think it happens at a university level. Um, I think it happens at a business level. But like a treaty, you know, think of the different treaties that we, whether it's NATO and other, you know, I think it's going to have to be something like that where countries come together and they are, they have allies and they have some interest in common, which is perhaps around a code of conduct like the five we just quoted from. That's probably where it will go rather than reshaping politics and having politics being beyond country and, and, and you know, being more about culture and what you identify with that's the future I, I, and i think it's laudable so uh, i look forward to finding out more about what you're doing there um <clears throat> just looking at this office of ai it was interesting who they've included in it and you know some of them because uh, one of one of them is one of your case studies in the book it's the Ocado chief technology officer paul clark mm. who you know um dame patricia hodgson who i've heard of um she's the board member of the center for data ethics and innovation and the alan turing institute chief executive didn't know she'd gone on to do that but there you go mm. um Professor Adrian Smith, don't know, Kriti Sharma, the URI Chief Executive, and um, David Lane, who's the Director of the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics. I mean, there's, there's a nice, interesting group. Um, but, but there's a statement on the website for the Office of AI that I, I'm going to have to ask you about, which is... Britain is already a leading authority in AI. We are the home of some of the world's finest academic institutions. And I don't disagree. Oxford and Cambridge do some amazing works. And there's other universities as well. But the, to say that we're already a leading authority and that through this AI council we will continue the momentum to leverage knowledge of experts. And it talks about how we will invest into it. 
Mm. We've sold the crown jewels already. DeepMind's gone. Other companies are going. Amazon has its centre of Alexa development in Cambridge Mm. to do the brain drain. So I look at these sorts of announcements and I, I, I do despair that... You know, China is building with Alibaba, Tencent and Baidu, you know, the bat, Mm. as they're called, um, an amazing amount of AI. America's way ahead, as you said, um, and we seem to have, you know, sold everything before we've even got started. How can Britain really get back into this game? I think the only, and I completely agree with everything you've just said, Sam, and I think the only way is that injection of cash and grants and all of the knowledge that comes out of the universities and our you know incredible educational system to then be able to help them grow and you know sell and be incredible companies around the world but I just wonder if it is a little bit too late um, you know I think where we are leading is in the moderation and the ethics and the privacy and now for example our Alan Turing Institute and our data ethics and, you know, collaborating with other governments. You know, I went on two missions, British Embassy missions out to um, to Dubai and obviously Dubai has, is the first country in the world that has its Institute for AI. But, you know, they're looking to Britain and they're looking to the work we're doing on ethics and so on. But I think a lot of it comes down to cold, hard cash, doesn't it? And we need to put more money in and we need to retain our incredible people and our incredible scientists and businesses with the right kind of tax breaks and the right kind of incentives and and other ways of making them grow. And something very interesting somebody said to me recently was the mentality in the UK of British businesses. And they said, every startup in Britain seems to want to list or sell, have an exit very, very quickly. Ah, whereas an American, you know, whereas, you know, that, that's what, what I've heard from... No, quite- you're right, but that, that's the VCs in this country. Mm. Uh, three startups and, you know, we grew a business and the first thing we went to ra- go for a Series A round, are you profitable yet? Mm. I'm like, give me a break. You know, we've just been going a year. We need some investment now to get to the next stage. Mm. And my competitor, I won't go into who it was, uh, just raised 10 million in the US. We were trying to raise a million and it was like, Mm. no, until you're profitable. So the short-term mentality in this country is driven by the very fact that when we want funding, I mean, look at Twitter, look at Facebook, look at, um, well, maybe not Facebook, but look at Twitter, look at Slack, look at all those companies that IPO'd. Not one of them was profitable. Mm. Uber's not profitable. But would you ever have got any of those three com- companies to exist out of the UK? No. Yeah. It yeah. wouldn't have happened because the VCs in this country are too myopic. We, we had and so sorry. short term. Yeah, that's the thing. Everything's about you know a couple of years and out. Whereas we need the longevity. We need to keep that, as you say, don't have the brain drain. Keep them in this country. Yeah. Grow the business. Have the you know that's the trouble. But we've so, lost. Yeah. I mean, DeepMind was one of our best examples. Yeah. That's gone. I mean, look, Graphene out of Manchester University. That's gone. The Chinese own that. So I mean, I, I do wonder whether we're just going to produce some great intellectual people and just lose them anyway mm-hmm. we don't know and maybe maybe I'll try and get hold of Jeremy Wright to come on the programme and see what he has to absolutely. say absolutely sure um, would now look um, looking looking further afield then um, so we've got some government thing one of the, the there was two things on that list that you you gave one that really interests me one was the last one you mentioned which was about schools and education <clears throat> what are we doing to educate our young 
into this new world. I mean, we, we, we talked about universities and we've got some great universities doing some great things. But what about in schools? I, I, my daughter's in the school age. They don't even teach them HTML and JavaScript, let alone AI and, and cognitive thinking. And we're still teaching them Victorian skills. Like, when was the last time you used Pythagoras' theorem? <laughs> What's a tangent and cosine? I've never used it in my whole of my adult life. Yeah. But that comes out of Victorian education requiring two types of people. One was a bureaucrat. So we learned to do that and we learned to be engineers and that's where all those mathematical things came from. We're not teaching our children modern day skills. So how can we teach them, forget a, a you know, we're mm. not even teaching them basic computing. How do we get to teach them AI? Agree, completely agree. We're not, you know, and it's quite depressing when you meet on these missions certain companies who have incredible AI tools for education, for example, and they're not selling them to the UK, they're selling them to other countries because there isn't yet the appetite to buy it. Now, I don't want... It's hard to get down into the nitty-gritty. Is it funding? Probably not. I mean, one worrying statistic I saw last week at a um, British Equipment Suppliers Association, it was all about the educators, and it said that the apathy and what was stopping them buying more tech in schools was not about budget anymore, but was the teacher's reluctance. Yeah. Now, you know, yes, there is that reluctance and there's that technophobia, but the government, the Department for Education, others have got to, you know, ensure it happens and update the curriculum and make sure that we're teaching the skills in our schools and colleges today, primary and secondary, that are preparing us for the future. So back to my point, whether it's a task force that's looking at education or one that's adoption of AI and enterprise and other, you know, the Office for AI and others, we are bringing in the right kind of brains that are saying, right, businesses, right, we need these skills. Um, People, the scientists, we need to teach coding. Now, we need to be teaching our kids to code. We don't want them to come home, as someone quoted to me recently, he's an expert in AI, my child came home with a book teaching them how to fax. Why would we do things that are so outdated? We know the NHS still has a lot of fax machines, but you know we shouldn't be teaching our kids outdated technologies. So I think part of the issue is obsolescence, and there's a fear that it takes too long to change the curriculum and in that time, in that couple of years, we'll have moved on to the next innovation trigger, um, you know, whether it's IoT, whether it's quantum computing. So I can see a slight fear that technology does change so, so quickly. Um, but, you know, th- it needs to be live, doesn't it? And I think that's where AI can actually help because AI could democratize that Harvard or that Oxbridge education for everybody and be real time and be very inexpensive and be a portal that allows you to do very personalized learning in real time. Oh, they, they, so if the government, they, you know, if we use it properly, we should be able to avoid that obsolescence and that budget issue. But they exist, MOOCs, right? Massive online learning centers. I mean, they do exist and I know out of India, for example, a lot of kids go online after school to learn, Mm. right? Um, It's their way out of poverty for a lot of them. Um, You know, not all of them are poor. There's a very wealthy set as well. But, um, you know, if I try to teach my daughter just basic HTML, it's the roll the eyes. There's no no desire. There's no incentive there. I mean, she may be not the norm, let's say. Mm. Um, But 
they have no desire to learn about this stuff, right? And and you talked about your daughter as well, you know, that you've taught her more from your book and the case studies and the practicality of what you do than she did at school. So I worry deeply that, you know, all these lovely words from people like Jeremy Wright and the Office of AI and the government saying things and pontificating, and none of it's actually rolling down to reality. And that's my fear. Yeah, I think it's a timing issue. I think it is, it, it's happening, but probably at a pace we'd like to speed up very, very quickly. Um, again, it ta- I guess it takes time, doesn't it? It takes time to get the experts in. It takes time to do the reports and what have you. I'd like to say that you will see some quite quick progress quite soon. Okay, let's change the topic slightly. Uh, one of the other areas in, in your book we, we um, I've read is is about the area of um, gender bias and um, cultural bias, I guess. Mm. You know, um, Amazon's AI recruitment tool famously was written by white male and and strangely, no females could get through that test. So they scrapped it off. They worked out that no women were going to work at Amazon. Um, how do we also, in, in the ethics that you, you talked mm. about, the five ethics, how do we get to audit these algorithms? Because often they are written by white males and therefore we will get all the isms into the algorithm because it's just simply a set mm. of codes so you know fascism racism sexism all the isms um how do we stop that we stop it by ensuring that the coding is done by a diverse set of people. So AI has the potential to eradicate that bias, but equally it can fuel it. So if it's programmed by the wrong people and you've got an HR team that wants to use you know, an AI tool that is going to help them recruit more... But they just the- assumed it would help. They, they, they didn't think through the ethics of it. They just went, okay, there's a smart bloke in the mm-hmm. corner. Go and write me an AI tool that will sift through all these CVs and find me the right candidates. Yeah, that's where you have to do your due diligence. You have to think about how are you going to progress with AI? Are you going to code in TensorFlow in an open um, source kind of environment? And if so, your own people are doing it and are they the right people to do it? Are you going to buy in a tool from you know Amazon Web Services or, or IBM? Watson or are you going to buy a tool you know on the market that's an AI tool for HR that has been programmed by multiple different people with a view to eradicating that bias and there are those kinds of tools on the market so it is a balancing act and people are finding their way at the moment in source outsource big vendor um, tech disruptor our own people that get retrained and, and there's pros and cons of doing all of those that are cost ownership and again eclectic and diversity related issues too yeah i, I agree that diversity is a way to stop it uh, i don't believe companies as i said because it's their competitive advantage will allow the auditing of it. Um, maybe they will, I don't know. But, but you know, and, and my final point, and maybe you can just comment on it, is, you know, how do you get women into IT, into engineering, into the sciences? They're, they're, there isn't a lot of women who are going down that road, so how do you get them into AI? Um, and how do you get people of colour into it, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it, more so in this country, as I said, in India, in, in Africa, in China, there are a lot of people who are non-white who are doing it. I mean, um, I'll talk about a company called Otter AI shortly, um, Sam Liang. But um, uh, how do you get more women into this? Yes, yeah, a really interesting space. I spoke at an event for London Tech Week 
all focused on women in STEM for a company called Advento Staffing. And the whole focus there and funny enough it was lovely refreshing it was an evening event and first time in a long while i've been to a networking event with 30 women and it was lovely to actually have a you know have a well represented you know female audience there it starts with role models it starts in school it's um you know it's about actually actively encouraging that and you probably need a little bit of positive discrimination for that to actually happen um but i think it's it's in the media it's role models it's clubs i'm aware of stemets and girls who code and some fantastic work that's being done but at a relatively small level um you know i speak at lots of conferences around the world and you do have some incredibly powerful women of all different races and and religions and so on stand up and promote this but we need more and more and more of those people and we need them coming to careers fairs and we need that to be on the curriculum as well uh, taught by these kinds of role models so i just think we need more you know need, need, need whether it's mandates and taxations and and encouragement and role models that's really how we're going to get to that great well look I, I hope so i have two girls you have two girls my my hope is for those girls both of our girls or all four of our girls should i say to have a career in 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 this world where you know the, the white bro culture doesn't s- well, stem their yeah. their future, you know, or limit their future. Yeah. I think you know, there's it's also seniority, isn't it? Because there's a you know a lot of women in in the tech world that I know, which is more martech marketing technology. But I wouldn't necessarily say that they're pushing through the glass ceiling and in the most senior roles. And I think that's important too, is that, again, we have, um, whether it's a code of conduct or a law or some kind of um, pressure group in business to ensure that there's more female representation on boards of these tech companies. We need that. Okay. Um I want to go and look at your past very quickly, how you got to this point. And then after the news, I want to talk about what comes next with AI and the futures and some of the, th- the other things you've seen, seen since you wrote the book. But you mentioned mar- marketing and tech, MarTech. How did you get into this world of technology then? What's what's the girl from Tottenham, which we will start with? <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can, you've got to start there really. So I was born in Tottenham on the 11th floor of a block of flats. Uh, Dad took me to Spurs. I'm a massive Spurs fan. I'm sorry, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sorry. We, you know, I'm a Liverpool fan. We all know what the result was, so we're okay. <laughs> Had it been the other way, I don't know if you'd been on the show. But that's... Absolutely. <laughs> so I started off, um, did a degree in languages, Reading University, not far from here and really got in my first job in tech so I worked for Siemens the uh, German electronics company um, and which joined forces with with GEC Plessy telecommunications my first job they said to me you're going to Nairobi in six weeks and you're going to represent you're going to take your box your steel box of telephone cables around the world oh happy so days. yeah it was fiber optics um, but it was a great job you know so I started off in in tech and and really have spent the last 30 years in the consultancy world. Got to know you through Text 100. I worked for different marketing and PR agencies, helping some of the world's leading tech brands. Like my book, you know, lots of established brands, the Microsofts and um, and others, um, and the BT, Cisco, that kind of world. But also loads of the tech disruptors at that time, dot-com, boom and bust and so on. Um, I've been spending 15 
15 years running my own businesses. Um, and really, I moved into digital to future-proof myself before it was fashionable when people were folded arms, poo-pooing Twitter and saying it was a fad and it was going to go away. Isn't it? You no. Know, uh, <laughs> um, you know, so I was avant-garde in training some of the leading brands on how to take advantage safely, profitably through social media. But everyone caught up. You know, I'm 52 and I'm not in London. I work in London a couple of days a week, but I'm in Tunbridge Wells. And every man and his wife became a digital marketing expert, or so they called themselves. Yeah, everyone's a social media consultant. You know, the barriers <coughs> to it were were limited. And although I'd like to say I'm much more strategic and, and better at it, you know, a lot of people do a good job. So I really have used AI for the last three or four years to future-proof myself for the next 10 years. So went away and invested, you know, a year in the book, but three years in learning about AI, how it's being applied to business and yeah that's where i am today so i'm now spending my time doing the consultancy the keynote speaking and having a good time yeah i mean it, it was it the 10 thousand hours to become an expert so you're on your road to be, you know you have to start somewhere i'm getting there <laughs> yeah the, the first step is always the hardest exactly um but so so you're 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 out there now um and doing ai and looking around what have you seen since you wrote the book? Because the book was what? When did that come out? Last year, I guess. book came out in February. Right. But obviously I put the content for it to bed, you know, four or five months prior to right. that. Right. Oh, what I've seen is just an explosion of the companies that have spurned out of all of this venture capital money. You mentioned Otter AI, who seem yeah. to be fantastic. You know, brands like Concured, um, you know, so many. It's hard to keep tabs on them. You look at the CB Insights, you look at marketing maps, you can see it broken down very visually um, into all different categories. So for every area of CRM, market research, content creation, there are hundreds of startups you know that are now out there so we're starting to see more companies take it up i've seen a lot more acceptance of ai when i started talking about it people thought it was artificial insemination <laughs> <laughs> i've seen my friends on facebook my old school friends really take an interest in it and every night on whatsapp they're firing me thinking that perhaps i don't even read the papers oh have you seen this and they're starting to get passionate about it so i think you know the general public see adverts on tv don't they like microsoft tv adverts um you're seeing much more interest in it you're seeing it in you know cancer care you're seeing it in education in marketing sales and hr in particular you're seeing more examples of it in banks um and i just think people the public are becoming a bit more comfortable with it is my assessment okay doesn't mean we're seeing masses of examples of return on investment or you know real sort of companies that have been around now three or four years that are ready to exit it's still quite early but i think the public are beginning to be a bit less fearful um and starting to see i mean you know the latest statistic i saw from deloitte is that there will be a net gain in terms of jobs created and jobs lost 
and I think that's quite reassuring. Okay. Now, one of your other passions outside of tech is singing, I believe. It certainly is, yes. I'm a bit of an ageing rock chick. So I sing in a covers band in Tunbridge Wells called TW3. And we sing in pubs, we sing for weddings. You have to rename the band because it was three of you to begin with. (laughs) There's more than three people in that band. It needs to be TW5 now, really. Yes. (laughs) And um, what song can we play for you? One One song you wanted us to play? I love the jam and I absolutely adore singing a town called Malice and and there's a line in the song time is short life is cruel but it's up to us to change and for me that's a message for all the listeners and it's linked to AI you know we've got to change we've got to put ourselves out of our comfort zone keep learning keep staying current I I happen to be very very lucky I saw Paul Weller on Sunday at Greenwich which was like the best and what did he end up with Town Gore Malice so, Iconic So we both love Mr Weller Take it away Paul
There we go, Paul Weller and the Jam, Town Call Malice, a favourite of mine as well. Thank you for that, Katie. Thank you, fantastic, yes. love it. We were just saying he he was he was singing also. Um, That's Entertainment, Pebble to a Boy, um, and some of the Star Council. He's just got such an amazing back catalogue. He's amazing and looks great still. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Yeah, we're all stood there looking at someone who's older than us all going, you look better than me. Um, We're going up to the news very soon, but when we come back, I want to start to talk about a world over on the far side of the world, China, who are implementing AI and who are implementing the social score, who are using algorithms and what that effect is and why I'm in favour of the social score and you're not. Mm, We're going to find out why I think. And that came about after the jam or Paul Weller's concert. I was like, so, right, you, you and you, you need to have a low social score. <laughs> I, was being, I was being very right-wing and very pompous, but there you go. Anyway, we'll see you after the news and, uh, yeah, we'll be talking to Katie King all about that. You're listening to Sam Sethi on Marlow FM. OMG. Who gave him a show? Indeed, who gave me a show, but thank God they did, hey? Thank you and welcome back. Yes, you're listening to Sam Talks Technology here on Marlow FM and I'm joined by my wonderful guest, Katie King, who's the author of a brilliant new book about AI. Thank you, Katie, for coming in today. You're welcome. Good to be here. Great conversation so far. Thank you. Yeah, now let's let's have a little bit of a uh, crystal ball look into the future, some of the things that are going on. So uh, AI, we've said, can be used for good or bad. Uh, One of the stories that's out today that fascinates me is um, Instagram have enabled an AI-powered feature that can identify potentially offensive comments and ask users if they actually want to post them. Um, I heard about this yesterday, and one of the comments that was said was, you know, we were all keyboard... um, you know, vigilante, ah, I hate you, ah. you know, we've all had that moment of one too many red wines, don't go near the keyboard. Um, so in real world terms, if you and I were sat opposite each other like we are now, and I wouldn't be rude, you know, but I, there is this thing about a glass screen computer a distance away and you feel like you can sometimes say anything to somebody. Oh, personally, I don't, or try not mm. to now. Um, but trolling has been quite a big thing. Now, I think what they're trying to do with this feature with AI is to bring in that, hold on a second, just wait a minute, are you sure you want to say what you're about to say? I think it's a really good idea. I mean, I have been, like I said, for 10 or so years advising people about their social media policies and appropriate behaviour, codes of conduct. Um, as a result of that, I and I've been on BBC Radio for a year doing a live social media surgery. You know, the, some of the biggest issues were that these publishing platforms, you know, they put their hands up, these social media platforms and said, you know, we're not publishing platforms. We're just putting the content out there. We're not, we're not responsible for it. And people were saying, well, you need to do more. So I think the Facebooks of this world and the Twitters have been pressured for many, many years to do something about it. And I think this is a good step. It's a fine balance, though, isn't it? Surveillance, liberty is a fine balance. But at the end of the day, you know, there's um, laws around the Communications Act and bullying and libel and all kinds of others. And as you said, you know, things that we um, do out in in the public and things we might say to people face-to-face and then thinking that we can get away with doing them from the anonymity of our bedroom, you know, there's, there's, that, that's quite a problem. And 
you can be liable. You know, you will be liable if you're found saying something on your Facebook or you're heard saying it in the street or you've written it. You know, you're equally able to be held up in front of the law. So if there's a filter that can actually say, well, hang on a moment, that's actually going to cause some issues. And are you sure you meant to say that? It's got to be a good thing, but... Just if it makes you stop and think before you press the button. Exactly, exactly. It's a bit like the parent. I can imagine my daughter, you know, and she wouldn't do that as such, but I can imagine that that someone like Instagram stepping in and saying it's like your mum going, you know, do you really want to wear that outfit? You look a bit tarty going out like that. You know, said that so many times. <laughs> and that, they won't like that. And that's just the one. They won't. <laughs> they're not going to like it, but I could see its benefits. I think, I think if anything that makes you stop and think is quite a good thing. Now, can AI be used to fix the other problems in social media? Fake news, fake identities. You know, we've got a real issue there. Can can we use AI or is it beyond the realms of we man? We can. There are supposedly AI apps that can tell you how many of the profiles on your pr- social media are fake, um, you know, potentially flagging what it perceives to be fake news. But equally, there are, thou- there are AI tools now that are creating multiple fake profiles. So for everyone that's potentially able to detect the bad, there are the others that are creating the fake profiles. So again like we said earlier it's unregulated and it's a free-for-all so where there's a a potential buck people are going to try and do all of that so you know the bbc and the other major content generators need to have those filters in don't they and they need and the publishing platforms and the the social media platforms they're the ones that need to be able to put some layers of of filter in to stop that news being put out over these major platforms. So far, though, I I have seen no tangible effect of any AI, um, Twitter, Facebook or wherever... Agree. That, and that is so doing again, anything. Yeah, yeah, there's potential, but we're not... If, if it could be done, it would be done at the moment, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting in Germany, because they've put laws in place, um, Facebook, as you said, isn't liable in most of the world. Mm. It, it tries to treat itself as a non-media publishing platform. But in Germany, it can't. It has been treated as that. And therefore, if they don't take down within 24 hours news or information that is both fake or... or, or let's say, referencing the Nazis, certainly in Germany, Mm. um, they are liable, heavily Mm -hmm. liable for fines. And so they've employed lots and lots of people in Germany. They could do this around the world, but they choose not to because there's no law. So I think we do need to have that come in and they they do need to be more responsible. I think Mm. this is going back to your work with the UK government on AI. We talked about earlier that social media needs the new norms, the social, cultural norms to be brought in. You know, it shouldn't be that you should be allowed to post anything you like without consequences. Yes. They're growing up, aren't they? I think yeah. that's the thing. People are growing up and realising the implications and just how complex it is and the need to act and not kind of just sit there and go, right, well, we'll take your money. You know, actually being responsible. So back to the code of conduct and that we talked about earlier, responsible AI. I think that's... an area that the uk is trying to drive i think it needs to happen even more quickly though yeah and i i think we need to because the world's gone in my opinion quite mad with fake news i mean flat earth people 
President Trump, every time he opens his mouth, is probably just fake news. But um, <laughs> Boris last night was was no better personally. But there you go. Um, worryingly, though, um, going back to what we were saying about um, young male bros being able to have the intelligence and tools to write stuff. Uh, did you hear about the one that was called Deep Nude? I didn't. This was a porn app that basically took a normal person's image and then basically made them nude. Uh, Clearly it wasn't their body underneath it, but the way that it was done made it look like it was that person's body and they were posting all these nudes of, guess what, females Mm -hmm. only. Mm -hmm. So the the, the thing was, it was called Deep Nude and the app used AI to create fake nude pictures of women. Motherboard was the first that reported uh, Deep Nude uh, and confirmed that the Microsoft-owned software development platform uh, won't allow Deep Nude anymore. So GitHub has banned it. Um, Basically, it was sexually obscene content and it was going all over the place. Now, the problem you've got is um, it's it's like the genies out the, the, the... bottle you know these tools are amazingly powerful and this is one example of where it's used for negative reasons or as opposed to positive mm-hmm. um how do we stop these sorts of things can we or is it just a case of they happen and then retrospectively we've just got to take them down a bit of the latter it, it's again the fine balance if we we have to have guidelines for it don't we and where do they start do they start in at the programming level are they certain industry sectors are they within certain companies it, there has to be there has to be guidelines for ethical usage of this kind of activity or we'll see more and more of that yeah and, and what worries me is um the people who were involved have not been done not that I can read or because find Because there's out. no law. They haven't broken... Well, they must have broken some law. Well, it's the ethical law, mm. really. It's the. Mm. It, it's just unethical, right? Mm. It's like, um, you know, ex-boyfriends posting pictures of their girlfriends. A, daughters, do not take the bloody pictures in the first place. They don't have anything to post then. So, but, but boyfriends doing that, which is generally it's boyfriends doing it, ex-boyfriends. Mm. Um, it's unethical, so... Maybe it's not illegal. I think I think it is now illegal to post um, imagery like that. Um, I think it's been put under the stalking harassment yes. uh, laws. So that's good. I think we the just... law has to catch up, doesn't it? And I yeah. think with social media, the law took a decade to catch up, um, and that can't be allowed to happen with AI. I think the I the, sadly think it will, though. I think the ramifications are too too huge for that to happen. I really do think of the potential for robot warfare. Think of, you know, how it can be used in, in, you know, all kinds of areas of medicine and so on. I do think those bodies that regulate those industries are on top of this and will start to act pretty quickly on it. Yeah. Now, something like Deep New could never have happened in China, right? So there's a great uh, story about Microsoft Tay. I don't know if you remember, she was a bot. Yes. Um, an AI bot that was written by Microsoft China's data scientists mm-hmm. or AI scientists. And in China, she was seen as a teenage girl and she was put onto WeChat and various sites. And there was a lovely, respectful inter- interfacing with her. And she learned and grew and this became a phenomenon out there. So Satya Nadali, Microsoft's CEO, decided that at their launch of one of their big developer conferences, he'd bring Microsoft Tay over to the US put it onto Twitter within 24 hours. She was a Nazi swearing and I won't go mm. on, right? And culturally, 
that was well technically that was the same technology culturally she got inputs differently from two different cultures so again because twitter was unregulated and because that seems to be that freedom of speech seems to equate to anything goes doesn't it and that's in therein lies the danger you know what we perceive as a civil civil liberty or not wanting to have this oppressive government means that there is all that kind of poor behavior and and so on that, that that can continue so I promised I'd argue why I like the Chinese social score. So for those of you who don't know what the Chinese social score is, a bit like your credit score, but based on whether you've paid your taxes, whether you've got parking fines, whether you've done all sorts of naughties. Um, not even naughties, actually. It's, if you buy games, uh, you get a negative score. If you buy nappies, you get a positive score. Now, they've only got this in Beijing, but they are rolling it out. And, and one of the bigger dangers that people see is this is the Chinese culture being rolled out not so much just Chinese social score because the Silk Road 2.0 is China's uh, fundamentally um, non-war-based expansion of its political power Mm. into countries. So certainly in countries like Africa where it says, I'll build you a port or I'll build you a road in exchange for uh, your raw, raw materials but then take on our social culture. So companies who deal with Chinese companies are now being told, well, you have to act this way and that way. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I I have gone between liking this and hating this thing, and I'm now on the side of liking it because I, I just think there is a point where I think you just said it, we've got freedom of speech, we've got the ability to perceptionally do what we want when we want. So you get trolls online saying what they like anytime, Microsoft taping an example. Mm-hmm. And I just think in a um, world where I'd like to live, where, you know, people are honest and, you know, do the right things, um, China's giving us a set of social uh, norms and they're using an algorithm and AI to measure it. Um, so, for example, yeah, you know, the guy who parks on the yellow line that blocks the school run. This morning I had one of those, right? Didn't care about any of us so we're all stuck in a queue for 35 minutes because he wanted to get out of his car and he stuck it on a yellow line so everyone had to pop and go round him and whatever why is that acceptable why i think we've got to the point where we need government control you know the balance between government and freedom of uh, mm-hmm. choice i think it's gone too far to the freedom of choice end of the scale i would like to see more balance from government I, I don't know what you I, think. I can see some merit to what you're describing. Um, I think in some elements of our societies, and I say, you know, we, I've come from Tottenham and, and masses of problems with, um, you know, crime and broken down families and lack of respect and so on. But equally, I'm hearing, and it's unverified, but that a lot of the organised gangs in these, you know, poorer boroughs of London are coming out of Russia and China. Again, believe that, if you will. I don't know if it's true. Um, I've worked in, in not, not lived there, but I've visited Shanghai and other parts of China, and I have interacted with a lot of uh, Chinese business people, and they believe that they have real freedoms and they have a thriving society and an incredible, um, you know, economy, but... 
if they step outside of um, you know what's deemed to be right on, and expected and they want to demonstrate in the streets they can't and so I do agree with much of what you're saying but I don't want it to become an abuse of power and I think that's what worries me more is, is you know whether you call it communism or totalitarianism or whatever you call it you know and I've just come from the United Arab Emirates and there's some amazing um, you know almost like capitalism there but it's a benevolent meritocracy so you have these other political ways of managing the country and in China it's a massive homogenous market very very different you know to, to where we operate so I just think we I can see the benefit in some of what Dubai is doing some of what China's doing but I still have huge respect and faith in our democracy and in our civil liberties and in our ability to demonstrate and you know to to sort of have freedom i don't want to be penalized um if i don't have a high social score and therefore not i'm not able to buy a flight my mum isn't even on the internet she goes to the local library she would have a zero score and she wouldn't be able to book her holiday to the far east that to me isn't right so too many extremes there for me to say i'd like that but elements of it that i do agree with you on okay so when you go on holiday do you hang out with brits no why because <laughs> there's just, a lot of hooligans exactly and i want those to stay at but, home and have a low social score and not come out and spoil my holiday and label me as a brit with the rest of them i don't want them with me and i don't want them abroad but I want them on the terraces of Spurs. I'm happy to sing along. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want them there either. <laughs> we are talking minorities, aren't we? We are, we are talking, talking very small numbers. Very small numbers. And most 99% of people are great, right? So I'm not trying to advocate for a society in which you can't say boo to a goose. Yeah. But I do think the scale has tipped the wrong way. Now, I'm sure that I'm going to get lots of abuse from this, but, you know, I do feel that, you know, the guy who doesn't pay their tax when I do, the guy who, as I said, parks on the yellow line because he thinks it's fine, the guy the other day who parked in a disabled parking space, right, when clearly he gets out of this lovely mm. car, walks across the street, no problem at all, but he didn't want his car scratched, mm. so he puts it in a disabled bay, which stopped possibly a disabled person being there. But, Why but that's aren't a those people being penalised? But that's a drop in the ocean compared to the corporate that doesn't pay its tax, compared to the VIP multi-millionaire or billionaire that doesn't pay their tax and finds a loophole because they've got the best consultancy advice. So, you know, some of that, there are, as you say, for every example we can give where it's pro, there's going to be a con. Um, You know, and I think there's good and bad in every society, in every borough of London. I live in Royal Tunbridge Wells and it's very affluent and there's some lovely people, but equally there's some absolute idiots and they live in a, in a, um, a little microcosm of society where they just don't see beyond their, you know, their beautiful yachts and their incredible, yeah. you know, so I think it's very easy to generalise and equally it's very easy to, to look at the dystopian black mirror um, equivalent and say, right, that's Chinese social scoring is all bad i do see some merit in it 
you know I do see how what they're how they're using AI in their schools is laudable you know it's incredible we should be doing that I'm t- working with a number of um, Chinese AI companies in the education space and what they're recommending and, and how that's being rolled out is incredible you know outside of school clubs teaching the children focus on this this and this because based on the exam results they've got the AI's analyzed it and said they need to be learning this 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 in order to perform better rather than the kind of homogenized way we do it or you know all just trying to do it because we want to get our 11 plus or because you know we need to fall into this curriculum so you know there's pros and cons without a doubt oh well I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for a, a social score I want that in next I don't think any UK government will ever ever implement it but there you go i agree they'll be too scared but you know i think they'll implement it by stealth they will do it Uh, if they're gonna do it it'll be by stealth no one will publicly say they're doing it 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 might well be happening behind the scenes you talked earlier about your amazon alexa you know we're hearing again unverified but lots of reports that we're being listened in on certainly i say something into my siri and it's very likely a little while later that and some advert will pop up on my face no i don't believe that siri doesn't listen to anything (laughs) siri's so dumb it doesn't listen to a word you say but there's certainly some kind of surveillance going on without a doubt oh look i mean you know we were talking about writing a book if i was ever going to write a book can you imagine writing a book about somebody in 1950 sitting down saying how can we track everyone on the planet i know we'll create this thing called the internet then we'll create a web then we'll create mobile devices so now we can have everyone know exactly where they are because every isp knows exactly where we are and what they looked at and now we'll add voice to it so now we can listen to what they're going to say and hear everything they're talking about yeah and then oh guess what now we'll add another layer of surveillance we'll put iot in Mm. if you wrote that as a plan for listening to every human on the planet you, you'd be laughed at. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. where we are, I guess. At least the Chinese are obvious in the way they do it. Yeah, and I, 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 again, I always say the yin and yang. Government and corporate have to have a balance, right? Corporates need to have some freedom of expression in order to grow, to develop, to, to evolve, to create new things. Equally, I think it's the role of government to balance it, you know. Mm. As you said, go after Philip Green not paying his taxes. But, you know, when... I get really annoyed when people say Amazon didn't pay their taxes or Google didn't pay their taxes. Yeah, they did. It's the governments who've given these loopholes, mm. not, and the companies have just simply implemented Taking legal, mm. Mm. you know, tax purposes. And if you say it's the responsibility of a board to maximise shareholder value, which I think is a wrong thing to do, but it, that's what it is currently, then paying the least amount of tax is boards doing their job. Mm. So. Yeah. You know, government is the thing that's wrong, um, but government blames corporates, government blames everyone else but themselves, and that's... That's what we need to do is set the AI on crunching some of these issues. You know, the, the hope is, and I think, you know, Stephen Hawking talked about it, that we can use AI to help us give us the answers to some of climate change issues and other environmental issues and some of the issues we've been talking about today. Give AI the complexity of all of these different political institutions and ways of doing business and what it means to be human and it will help us come up with the right kind of ideas and insights so um one last area i'd like to just get your thoughts on um facebook and libra which is its new cryptocurrency um one thing you said to me offline was um what does it mean to be a nation state anymore 
Um, because, again, going back to China very clearly is a nation state. But you and I are, you know, travel around the world. I mean, I, I've got an Indian heritage, but I'm British. My children are half Indian English. I said if they married a Chinaman next, what does that make my grandchildren? What does it mean to be a nation state? And I think um, currency is very tied to nation state. So I'm really interested with Libra, this new potential cryptocurrency. Well, it's not really crypto, but um, it uses blockchain. Do you think this is going to be a massive step change or is it just a, oh, Facebook trying to make more money? I think it could be a massive step change, but I think governments will step in and stop its progress. Um, I completely agree with you in, you know, political institutions starting to, some of them are starting to feel a bit outdated or certainly in need of of being being made much more relevant to the needs of a, of a much more technologically um, savvy and aware society with all of the tools that that brings to it. Um, I think it's powerful, you know, really, really powerful, the potential of that current but I just worry again about, you know, what the, the geographic barriers that we've had and the wars that we've fought internationally for so many years and, and what does it mean to be British? Is it about territory? Is it about culture? But at the end of the day, you know, we, we run our country in a certain way with a certain budget, with certain rules and, you know, we have to sort of try and cooperate with our neighbours and with, with other allies around the world and at the moment, that isn't going to change overnight and therefore the ability of that kind of currency you know to be used globally i start to wonder then the company that owns that becomes more powerful than many of the governments of of, of many nations and i think that's why it won't succeed mm. the the central banks won't allow it to succeed because they lose control yeah katie king thank you so much for joining me today now Remind everyone what's the name of the book and where they can get it. So the book is called Using Artificial Intelligence in Marketing. You can find it on Amazon and on my publisher's website, Kogan Page. We can put up a discount code. I can give your listeners a 20% discount code if they do want to get it. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn, you know, Katie King Zudikas on Facebook and Instagram or Katie E. King on Twitter. I love connecting with everyone and um, yeah, it will be great to continue this conversation elsewhere, but thank you for inviting me in for a superb conversation. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.